This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 428 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Brent Gleason. Now, Brent started off in the financial space before transitioning into the Navy SEALs, spending a career there and then transitioning out as an entrepreneur. So we discuss a host of topics from military family dynamics, being a single father, forging mental fortitude, his new book, Embrace the Suck, and much more. Before we get to the conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, 
leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brent Gleason. So Brent, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thank you so much, brother. It's an honor to be on here with you. So where on planet Earth are we finding you? I am in a little town called Rancho Santa Fe, California, just the north party count, uh, part of uh, San Diego. Brilliant. All right. Well, I'd love to start chronologically at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Uh, born and raised in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I have a twin brother named Scott. We are fraternal twins. Uh, interestingly enough there, my parents did not know they were having twins at the time of birth. So, oh, really? <laughs> it was a bit of a shock uh, for both <laughs> my mom and my dad. I believe that's the day my dad's hair started to turn gray. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was a surprise baby uh, despite being a twin. Uh, we're fraternal twins. Um, so, uh, couldn't be more different actually. Uh, so it's interesting. So, uh, grew up, you know, together, parents are still, uh, still together. Uh, they still live in Dallas. Uh, my brother and his wife kind of move around a bit. They're currently in Crested Butte, Colorado, but, uh, yeah, it was a, a, a nice upbringing and, uh, went to uh, some good schools growing up. So a lot of, a lot of good memories. Brilliant. What did your parents do? Uh, my dad was and basically still is, regardless of his, his quote unquote retirement, uh, pretty much been in the commercial real estate development, investment advisory uh, business his whole career, um, you know, working a lot on, you know, mixed use deals, both, uh, you know, multifamily, you know, commercial retail, uh, land, you know, land deals all around the country. But these days, uh, he pretty much doesn't have to look outside the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex to find new opportunities because everybody's moving to Texas. <laughs> yeah, they are at the moment. My God. And, and my mom was a speech pathologist uh, for many years. Oh, really? Yeah. Brilliant. So with, with her, were there any kind of interesting stories or, um, you know, takeaways from the speech pathology world as, as her, her profession? Other than being meticulous about grammar? <laughs> 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 no, it was great. She uh, she actually went back to school. Uh, she had been she had a master's in education and was a, a teacher uh, for uh, predominantly aut autistic kids when we were very young, and then left that behind to do the full time mom thing and go all in on that. And then when we were in middle school, she went back to get her uh, master's degree in speech pathology. And uh, and then did that from a kind of a one on one tutoring standpoint for about seven or eight years uh, following that. So pretty, pretty impressive. Beautiful. Well, what about sports? Did you and your brother play a lot of sports when you were younger? Yes. Uh, growing up when we were very small, it was soccer. Uh, when we were in, then in high school, I segued into swimming. Uh, I had been doing competitive swimming my whole life, uh, but not as seriously as when I was in high school. And then played uh, rugby uh, for all four years uh, in college. And so that's kind of my, my athletic journey. All right. Well, it's always interesting hearing, you know, these high performing you know, men and women I have on the show, what sports they 
played when they were younger. For example, wrestling seems to be a very strong common denominator when it comes to fostering resilience, you know, mental and physical. But another interesting one are people that have performed at a high level in an individual sport and a team sport. Because for the fire service, there's times where we have to be completely self-sufficient and other times, obviously, we have to work well as a cog in the, the machine that is the fire service. Right. So what were the, when you look back, how important was rugby and how important was swimming to your career? Well, it's interesting you make that, um, you know, that analogy because uh, regardless of the type of sport. So swimming obviously is, you know, you could look at that as somewhat of an individual sport when it comes to your own performance. But at the same time, you are on a team. Uh, so there's always that team dynamic and understanding how your performance, your mindset, your rituals and behavior and the decisions you make and, and how you support the team, uh, what type of result that delivers. Uh, and then, of course, when it comes to a sport like rugby, obviously a very clearly you know, team oriented uh, uh, endeavor, um, I think I learned the most about conduct and leadership and collaboration and innovation uh, in the sport of rugby. Uh, actually, I don't know if you played growing up at all, but uh, I really found it to be a fascinating sport. Uh, I learned a lot from it and I learned a lot about not just my teammates, but a lot about myself. I was actually uh, my junior year elected captain of the team and it actually took me by total surprise. Uh, I did not see myself as having any real leadership quality or management style per se that I could point to. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, my teammates, you know, found those qualities in me. Uh, and I was wildly imperfect uh, as a leader, as a, you know, <laughs> as a young person. But uh, it was interesting looking back at retrospect saying, well, you know, from an analysis standpoint, what was it in me that they saw and how did I nurture that? Or how did I wildly fall short <laughs> of what they thought they saw? Um, and uh, of course, you know, we can always be in a constant state of improvement and, and getting feedback from others. But uh, that was kind of a, my first real uh, entree into, uh, you know, leadership and management as it learns, you know, as being a student and both teacher of that. Interesting. Yeah, no, the way I was built as a child, I'd be better off just holding the flag in one of the corners of the pitch. <laughs> I wasn't built for rugby, I tell you. I, but we played in, in, in British schools, you play everything regardless. But yeah, as far as outside of that, definitely not. Now, what about the swimming? So, you know, a couple of things that, that I observe as swimmers, we've got a, a female athlete in my gym. She's one of the owners of the CrossFit gym that I coach and train at. And she is a phenomenal pacer. Like she'll start at a pace, her face doesn't change. She has this like expressionless cyborg face and she outworks all of us. And she says, look, it's probably partly to do with the swimming, the, to be able to push through the pain and also the breath control. So what about that element from your swimming background? Yeah, that swimming I found a real passion for. My, my dad was a competitive swimmer in college at uh, Southern Methodist University or SMU in Dallas, where I actually ended up going years later. And so he always had my brother and I and you know, either swim lessons or then, you know, club sports when it comes to swimming and things like that growing up from elementary school uh, all the way into high school. And it wasn't something that was pushed on us per se, but something that was definitely encouraged as a, a former passion of his when it comes to athletics and sports. Um, it really is very mindset oriented uh, to your point, as are all sports. But swimming is a very unique sport, uh, both in sprints as well as in distance. Uh, and then when I began, it's funny, when I came back to swimming, uh, when I made the decision to really go all in on training for the SEAL program, uh, you know, probably at least a year and a half before I even joined the Navy, uh, I hadn't been in a pool in uh, 
<laughs> a long time, probably about four years, at least not from a, you know, uh, from a workout standpoint. And I remember getting in the uh, Olympic size outdoor pool at SMU at the time with one of my college buddies with whom I began training uh, for the SEAL program and just swimming down and back I mean, 100 meters. <laughs> I felt like I was going to drown. And you realize how, you know, as you know, as, as you know, many people, you know, who in, engage in athletics their whole life, the conditioning for one sport to another can be wildly different. You can be uh, a fantastic runner and horrible in the water, regardless of your cardi, cardi, cardio ability. Uh, and the, the, the difference uh, is true there. You can be a phenomenal swimmer and horrible on land, <laughs> regardless of how well um, how well trained you are and what type of uh, physical fitness level you're at. Um, but with swimming, I, I really what I love about it is you can lose yourself in it. You can find yourself in it. Uh, and when you're in the water, especially open water swimming, which I uh, which is one of my biggest passions is uh, you you can really, uh, it's almost meditative in a way. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're feeling the pain, but you're getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, but at the same time, you have uh, that ability in the water to shut everything else out, shut out all distractions, shut out everything other than the completion of your mission. Uh, or in just a training scenario when you're swimming, I've found, you know, to it be a, a very thought provoking um way to spend your time and a way to think creatively, a way to uh, think about your personal life, your professional life, your business, <laughs> you know, maybe a, that's something you want to write about. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. You know, I don't, I haven't found that in other sports other than distance running. Yeah. Well, the other thing about um, swimming that I've no, noticed, you know, when people come on here like Tim Kennedy and, and I've done his uh, sheet dog response workshop or it's your jujitsu side, it's your weapon skill side, but swimming isn't something people think about. But, you know, there's so many opportunities to save a life if you are a strong swimmer. And I'm, I'm, I, I just like you, I ebb and flow. There's times where I'm training and I'll get myself back up and there's times where I let it go. But I was a lifeguard for quite a while in my teens and early twenties. And people forget what, a, you know, what an important part of the sheepdog puzzle that is to, to navigate water. Oh, yeah. And obviously, as a parent, it's important to be able to strong swimmer to teach your children. But then, of course, I, I didn't realize at the time that it would come in quite handy uh, when joining the Navy. Yes. <laughs> so that, that was a benefit. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's talk about that then. So when you were at school age, high school, your aspirations at that point weren't the SEAL teams, were they? No, uh, not by any means. I was uh, focused on high school stuff, <laughs> you know, scholastics athletics and then all the other nonsense that we engage in uh, as young immature uh, high school folks uh, and also really focused on you know what university that I was going to go to my parents are pretty uh, rigid around uh, college application process and um, you know the types of um, schools that they wanted us to apply to so academics were, were big you know, for us growing up and you know it it, it, it Sometimes it seemed burdensome at the time, but looking back, of course, uh, highly valuable uh, because of the discipline that it instilled. Um, and so I was focused on uh, getting through high school and getting into a, a good college with absolutely no uh, military aspirations whatsoever. Now, my dad had served as a uh, Marine reservist during Vietnam, uh, thankfully didn't have to deploy downrange. But uh, th that being said, that was not something he ever really talked about nor impressed upon us when it comes to military service as a young adult. Now, with um, with your education, what was the focus then? Was it was it the financial side that you were focusing on? 
Yes, in, in my undergrad at SMU, I double majored in finance and economics, and my plan was to segue into you know, either the financial sector or something having to do with uh, commercial real estate investment or development. Right, and what took you to Oxford University? Uh, there was an opportunity to uh, to to attend, and obviously a, a pretty um, rigid application process. But uh, I was blessed enough to have been given the opportunity, and uh, it was really just absolutely uh, fantastic. It was extremely challenging, uh, which was also what made it uh, so rewarding, uh, and also just the history and the environment of studying and learning from these amazing professors. Uh, in that setting, uh, you know, living uh, at you know University College Oxford, uh, being surrounded by seventeen to twenty other uh, amazing historical uh, universities, uh, and it was really inspiring. It's really where I actually learned how to be at least a halfway decent writer, um, uh, not without some challenges. I remember <laughs> yeah, we had one one course where they do a tutorial system, as you probably know, where you essentially meet on Monday morning, you know, with your whole class in the classroom. Uh, you'll you know, cover uh, you know, some module or, or curriculum, and then you'll be given an assignment. And you meet again on Friday one-on-one -on -one with your professor. So in that course, it was uh, basically each week you'd be reading a book and you'd be uh, writing a paper uh, regarding that piece of work that you read. Uh, and we were not even allowed nor given the opportunity to use uh, laptops. <laughs> Everything was supposed to be handwritten, um, which was, was interesting. And then you'd meet with your professor and he would get out a big red pen. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like a, a bloody massacre afterwards, but you learned a lot. And, uh, and then, you know, it was, uh, it's kind of a work hard, play hard environment. You think, well, Oxford, that's a boring old historic town. It's a, it's a college town. <laughs> it's a pub every five feet. So uh, we, uh, we had a good time uh, while we were there as well. But I uh, got to play a little rugby there um, and just and, and travel around a bit uh, on the weekends. So it was a really, really amazing opportunity. Beautiful. Did you notice anything that kind of struck you as far as a difference between the American students you'd grown up through the system with and some of the English students? Uh, not, not as much as I thought. Uh, I thought there would be a vast difference in discipline and focus, uh, more focused from the English students, I mean, <laughs> especially in an environment like that. But it, it was a very diverse, really, really diverse uh, group of students that, that I interacted with. So, you know, some from the States, some from all across Europe, some English. So it, uh, it, um, it was, it was really the level of diversity of not just people, but the, the diversity of thought was also what added such an amazing uh, value to the experience as not just learning from the professors, of course, but learning from those around you. Right. Well, then, so walk me through graduation into finance and then, you know, what made you suddenly take that turn into the military? So I, it is kind of a <laughs> funny story. I uh, graduated, uh, took a job as a uh, financial analyst with a large uh, commercial real estate development uh, and investment firm. They're a global firm, but their corporate headquarters was, in fact, based in downtown Dallas. So I spent my days uh, on the 42nd floor of a high rise uh, in Dallas, uh, building spreadsheets and pivot tables and uh, putting out uh, investment reports. <laughs> However, at the time, uh, one of my uh, very close friends uh, at university, at, at, at SMU, uh, he was in fact one of these young men who did have a more or less lifelong passion and dream to challenge himself and one day graduate, join the Navy, and let's say at least attempt to be accepted into the notorious Navy SEAL training pipeline. 
And obviously, I thought that was highly admirable, you know, a call to service. Uh, this was just pre 9-11. So a little bit of a different mindset uh, during peacetime. Uh, but, you know, so many, I think, back then looked at it as a, a bit more of a personal challenge. Uh, obviously, it looks good on your resume, <laughs> but also more importantly, you know, serving your, your country and, and giving back uh, to a cause greater than yourself. And just the general experience uh, of military service, I would impress upon any young person to serve in the military in some capacity at some point in their life. And, but he and I actually started training together. So he was a year behind me in school. He was now a senior. I was uh, out in corporate America. And so for me, it was just a, a way to have an accountability partner and stay fit and simultaneously help a friend prepare for this arduous and complex journey that laid ahead. And so just by nature of that training regimen, we started spending a lot of time together and having a lot of dialogue about you know, the history of the Naval Special Warfare community from our forefathers, uh, the underwater demolition teams in World War II, to how we essentially cut our teeth as an elite assault force in Vietnam. And let's just say gradually I started leaving the office a little earlier every night, <laughs> started training a little harder on Saturdays and Sundays with him, started reading more and more and more. And that growing fascination coupled with, you know, the somewhat boring nature of my entry level analyst position led to the ultimate um, culmination of a decision to uh, leave that behind, at least for the time being, and join him on this crazy journey of nautical nonsense. Um, I wrote my parents a letter, like super old school, like sat down, pen and paper. I remember I actually did it in my office <laughs> at my job and I uh, wrote them a letter saying I was uh, leaving my job and enlisting in the Navy. And uh, let's just say they were a little a little surprised. <laughs> but it was beautifully never, written. <laughs> I didn't tell them I was training. I, did, I didn't talk to them at all about any uh, notion of uh, joining the Navy. But uh, once they realized that I was, in fact, very serious and very passionate about the decision, because this decision came about over the course of over a year's time, uh, they were, let's say, cautiously optimistic. Right. Well, I want to get on to the mentor that, that kind of helped you guys as well. But just before that, you know, when you have people that go through these horrendous crucibles, whether it's special operations, whether it's a good police or fire academy, um, there is that burning desire. Whereas, you know, with your story, that was a very, you know, recent uh, chapter change. So as that year progressed, when you look back, what was that why that became a burning flame inside your your mind? It was really my first, really the first time in my life that I would say that I took any serious calculated risk. You know, most of the uh, decisions, and you know, just being fully transparent, um, up until that point had, you know, kind of more or less been shaped or guided or made for me. Um, not to make it sound like I was raised in a sheltered existence by any means. I was given, you know, plenty of opportunities for for challenge and and growth and and well roundedness. But uh, this this was. And, and thinking just purely from a mathematical standpoint, a significant risk because of the extremely high attrition rate and knowing that I had no real desire to do anything else in the Navy, much less the military. Once I set my sights on this goal, uh, that was the goal. And it, it's interesting uh, to kind of put a piece of data attached to this is the Naval Special War Warfare community. We, we've actually invested now that we've been at war for two decades, over the years, we've been starting to really invest uh, lots of money, time and resources into research and identifying the mental, cognitive, emotional and physical attributes of students more likely to successfully navigate uh, the course, because we would ideally like to have more SEALs in our community. <laughs> we need more warriors. 
yet the attrition rate is still so high because the training is so hard that uh, the data actually points to less measurable uh, elements of grit and mental fortitude and an emotional connection, uh, like you said, a deep burning desire and emotional connection to service, not just in the military, but as a SEAL. Therefore, there's a, there's a passion uh, and a level of uh, purpose and persistence that associates with that goal and that emotional connection, just like, just like to your point, in any walk of life, any goal we've ever achieved uh, didn't come without significant pain, suffering, <laughs> anxiety, and obstacles. Otherwise, it probably wasn't that big of a deal in the first place. Now, that being said, if it was a lofty goal, then there's suffering associated with that. But it's the emotional connection over anything else that keeps you focused on the long-term vision, not the short-term gains, but the uh, and the overcoming of those sort of micro failures and obstacles as you go down that meandering path, ultimately towards success. It's it's the emotional connection uh, and that burning desire. Now, where that came from, in retrospect, <coughs> I've reflected on this. I, I, I'm not quite sure. I think at the time, it was um, it was a way to. I had developed a, a taste for, you know, for pain in rugby and I had uh, take, you know, done some boxing in college and I had uh, become a skydiver uh, in college as well. So uh, I liked the adrenaline rush. I liked risk uh, and, and those types of activities, uh, but I never really applied them towards a cause greater than myself. So when you tie that desire for risk and challenge and accomplishment to something that's bigger than you and you have an emotional connection there, you're actually statistically more likely to succeed, uh, whatever the definition of success is. Beautiful. Well, I know another factor that has come into a lot of the stories that I've had the honor to hear is a mentor figure. Now, some of these are people that were on a wayward path or maybe even had been, you know, abused as a child, whatever it was, but the mentor figure, male or female, was the one that really kind of helped steer them in the right direction. Now, am I correct in understanding that you had um, a former SEAL yourself kind of help you guys with the training? Uh, yes. And it's interesting. And I, I talk about some of this research in the book is, you know, when, when it comes to uh, the philosophy around achieving expertise in, in any given, you know, craft or skill, whether it be art or music or mathematics or sports, um, you know, there's three elements uh, that are critical. And one is, uh, you know, having, you know, very close, uh, important social support, you know, friends and family during the most developmental years, um, engaging in what we call uh, intentional practice. So with a real strategy and you're practicing not for your current level uh, of need of, of performance, but for the next level of performance and then uh, unemotional mentors and coaches uh, that aren't just your champion, but more, even more importantly, uh, they are there to shoot you straight. They're there for transparent feedback and they're there to be an unemotional guide in helping develop you. Uh, so when I wrote that letter to my parents and uh, uh, they had time to digest <laughs> and come to the unfortunate acceptance that that was the, the new reality. Uh, my dad introduced me to, um, to a guy who became my mentor, someone who he had swam with at SMU uh, in their college years. And that person had uh, gone down a very similar path. He had graduated from SMU and joined the Navy as an officer and became a SEAL during Vietnam. And so ironically, uh, he was living out here in San Diego, specifically in La Jolla. Once he had transitioned out of the SEAL teams uh, during the war, he uh, took a job with uh, Merrill Lynch and had been with 
he you know retired maybe five years ago, but uh, or sold his practice within Merrill five years ago, but uh, had been with Merrill Lynch living here in La Jolla uh, ever since. So my dad said, well, <laughs> if you're serious about this, I guess we might as well introduce you to Tom. I think initially between you and me, uh, and of course everyone else listening, uh, I think that strategy was more so for Tom to talk me out of it <laughs> and to support me and lift me up into this, uh, you know, crazy idea. But uh, if that was the the notion, then it backfired because uh, it was great to have obviously nothing. Mentorship doesn't have to be formal. It doesn't have to follow a certain framework or methodology. Just having uh, someone's ear for all of the you know silly questions you ask as a young person going into SEAL training and trying to find the, the, the secret sauce and the solution that doesn't exist because it's a different emotional and physical journey for everyone. But um, But it was great to have someone not just uh, you know, in my, uh, you know, uh, you know, close immediate, uh, have close immediate access to, but who like, literally physically lived out here. So when I first moved out here, it was amazing to be able to have phys- you know, physical interaction one-on-one, like going to their house on the weekend, because when you're going through that type of training, you don't feel like a normal human. Uh, you just sometimes you just want to get the hell off base when you're allowed to. And, you know, to be able to go over to their house and spend time with you know his family and his wife and his kids was also just a great way to decompress much less. Obviously, just, you know, talk more about his experiences and, you know, and, and then what my experiences could be. Now, interestingly, uh, just as a quick you know, setup for what I'm about to explain is that the, the SEAL training pipeline has you know, basically a couple different buckets. The first one is six months long called BUDS or Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL. I know you've heard all this, but for the for the listener, uh, that's, you know, traditionally, if you see things around, around early stage SEAL training on documentaries or movies, that's what they're depicting. Then you segue into SQT or SEAL qualification training. It has um, a, a more advanced level of the training you've already had and, and, and additional schools such as free fall school, uh, such as, you know, sometimes language schools and other types of uh, training that you'll need. So you can really we really want our operators to be able to hit the ground running uh, when they get to a team these days. Uh, back in the old days, uh, you would just go through buds and then you'd go to a team and that's where you would started to learn how to be a SEAL. You wouldn't even earn your trident maybe you know, a year or more after being at the team. So it's a different process now. Uh, it's by design. But uh, 9-11 happened. We had a a few days off between BUDS and SQT, and that's when 9-11 happened. So it was an interesting and immediate uh, transformation of mindset. And then gradually, obviously, the culture of the military and the special operations community being at the more or less tip of the spear. So uh, that was interesting when things became, for lack of a better phrase, real. (laughs) Not that we not that you don't train uh, with intensity and being very intentional in what you do, but. You know, the the instructors and buds used to be like, well, we might have to go to war someday. So this is why I'm kicking your ass. And you'd be like, yeah, whatever, man, it's peacetime. <laughs> and then that happened. And guess who my guess who my first boss was in the SEAL teams in my first platoon? My the instructor I hated the most. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So. Well, well, Buds is obviously notorious, you know, as as is SQT, but I think it's the one that gets less, you know, less uh, exposure. But um, when you when you entered into the program um, and you had this preparation, you were a swimmer and you had done skydiving and some combat sports. Tell me about you know your own journey. Like, did did uh, did that? Did you feel like that paid off? Were there areas where you felt like you hadn't trained? I mean, what what? How did that factor into your success in BUDS and ultimately SQT? Sure, and I, I get that 
same question from the guys that I now mentor uh, into and through the program. Again, not not a formal you know, program per se, but I meet you know, young men uh, oftentimes or most of the time through social connections, like you know the you know the sons of you know a friend of my wife or you know so you know things like that and. Um, and or people who've reached out to me maybe through social media and I'm obviously very selective because I want to uh, you know not just spend my time wisely but you know, work with people who I know or believe to have the appropriate level of passion and emotional connection like we talked about to becoming an operator in the SEAL teams and uh, interestingly enough you know it's and I know you've talked to you know guys in the teams and you know, other special operations uh, special missions units and things like that but it's a very very level playing field it's a fascinating social experiment <laughs> in my opinion when it comes to especially the early stages when you're checking in and you're everybody's kind of sizing each other up and it feels more like an individual sport than a team sport because in the early days it kind of is uh, they put you in boat crews but where you learn to collaborate and communicate and you know, look out more for the person to your left and right. But when it comes to athleticism and preparation, my strategy was focus on what's in your control. Uh, the, you know, the mindset, the emotion, the anxiety, the stress that I knew was coming, but not at what magnitude was not necessarily something I could control nor train for. Now, anybody who's engaged in any types of, uh, you know, fitness or sports, uh, you know, throughout their life know that, you know, the more, you know, the harder you train the body, the more you're, you're, you're simultaneously training the mind when it comes to mental fortitude, grit, resilience, focus, determination, uh, you know, thinking strategically. Uh, you can't find success in any you know, level of fitness or sports without that. Uh, so you gradually have that over time. So my, uh, my training regimen was to uh, train relentlessly uh, so that I could train body, but also mind and not just body from a cardio and fitness perspective from swimming and running and climbing mountains and carrying logs, but also to prepare body, uh, to avoid you know, overuse injuries and stress fractures and, um, you know, joint problems and things like that. So that's why my buddy and I, with who I was training, we actually moved to Crested Butte, Colorado for about six months, right before the six months prior to enlisting, uh, so that we could train at high altitude, about 10 or 11,000 feet in Crested Butte, Colorado. Um, and that was, so that was the, our extreme training. And then we went to boot camp and got out of shape. Cause you lose that altitude quickly, don't you? Well, cause at boot camp, you don't get, you don't have, they're not, you're not given the time to train like we were 10 or 12 hours a day. Um, so you, you lose a little bit of that edge, but you get it back quickly. And so I think that obviously Comfort in the water was huge for me because I'm very comfortable in the water. So, you know, pool comp, drown proofing, the underwater swim and the, uh, uh, the, the pool week that you do, it's a second phase evolution. You know, you've already been through hell week, but we lose a lot of guys in that uh, diving evolution in the pool um, just because they're just not comfortable enough in the water in that environment. So being comfortable in the water obviously definitely helped. Um, I had done a lot of distance running as part of my training regimen, running marathons and things like that. So not just from a cardio perspective, but avoiding some of those injuries. I did have stress fractures and, um, and, and, you know, joint problems like everybody does. You know, I think I just like, like many was able to suffer in silence enough to get through specific, specific evolution. So it, uh, but again, we can have, you might have star athletes, uh, who've been at the top of their game their whole life who quit in the first 20 minutes of hell week. Uh, you might have a guy you look over and he, you're like, he looks like an accountant from, you know, <laughs> from Deloitte. And guess who might crush you in a 15 mile ruck run? I, you just never know. 
Um, that's why, you know, it's very much uh, a mental game, you know, when it comes to having the drive to push through it. We're not just push through from, you know, a, a fitness standpoint, but, you know, for guys who, yeah, maybe they have two broken shins, but they're not saying a word because they want to finish Hell Week. You know, maybe they have, you know, pneumonia, but they, uh, you know, but they, they fight through those challenges to, to get to the next level or, or an appropriate time when they can uh, can heal. So it, uh, it's really, it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of, um, you know, burning desire, I think a couple of things. Firstly, I know there's been several people on here now, but the thought, as you said, of, of getting washed out of the program and ending up as a, you know, a roulette wheel in the Navy somewhere was also, a, you know, a, a motivating factor for him. So you had the <laughs> positive, I want to be a SEAL, but there was also that kind of negative intrinsic, uh, motivator as well which is basically the fear of if i fail i'm i might be turning wrenches on a submarine yeah it's the same you know it's the same philosophy and in, in you know, as it ties into motivation theory and in, in any walk of life or personal and professional goal you think about people who are you know seeking upward mobility in a large organization you know we look at well what motivates them and how do we lead them how do we engage them but it uh there's you know there's those you know sort of hygiene motivating factors there's the motivational motivating factors and uh and it's an interesting balance of obviously sort of the, those positive factors but also the a little bit of that fear factor or a little bit of positive peer pressure <laughs> those can be very very powerful elements of not just what you want to achieve but what do you absolutely want to avoid uh and that was huge for me uh, as well and that's you know i have the utmost respect for all branches and ranks of the military but that wasn't for me that's not what i wanted to do uh, all I wanted to do at that point was uh, be a special operator. And so that, that was a big driving factor because, uh, you know, I don't necessarily always like the advice of, you know, don't have a backup plan. You know, have contingencies plan, contingency plans, but when it comes to contingencies or backups, that's not an excuse for allowing failure. Uh, it's a avenue for course correction. <laughs> so you're still moving forward, uh, but not saying, well, you know, this probably won't work out. So I'll fall back to plan B. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to sort of that mindset of, well, I'm not going to give myself that type of backup plan. I'm going to plan. I'm going to execute. I'm going to prepare. Uh, I'll have some contingencies and abilities to course correct along the way, just like a lot of the guys who don't make it the first time around. I have massive respect for people who uh, get injured during Hell Week and come back again and again. <laughs> it's some We've actually had to put some parameters in place within NSW at BUDS because for a while, they were allowing guys to stick around too long. <laughs> like people who like live there for a year, <laughs> they keep getting injured. I was like, it's, it gets expensive. <laughs> well, speaking of people, you know, being persistent and having that burning desire, you know, one of your fellow seals in in buds was David Goggins. So, what I find interesting, as you said, about the the common theme between you all is that you you have that thing, you have that grit, you have that resilience. Your background and story is very, very different to David's background and story. So tell me about your kind of relationship with him. Well, and that's what's interesting. You teed that up nicely because I was going to make that point and this kind of went into some of the research I did for you know the new book was, and this it has over the years posed a challenge for behavioral scientists or psychologists is that where does resilience come from? You know, where does mental fortitude and grit, how do we develop that? Do you have to you know, have a background of extreme adversity. And, and, you know, like you said, my background is, couldn't be more different, you know, than David's having grown up, you know, with, you know, a physically and emotionally abusive household with learning disabilities, childhood obesity, racism, uh, you know, just being surrounded by utter 
negativity uh, pretty much throughout his entire young life and even into his young adult life. Um, whereas that's not how I grew up. Um, but, but like you said, there was something, you know, I think that burning desire and that fire we have in us to achieve a specific goal can be fueled by very, very different things, but it's there nonetheless. Uh, that's kind of the, I know that sounds simplistic, but that's kind of the conclusion uh, many have come to when it comes to, you know, where resilience comes from. Uh, it's just how we harness and channel those experiences into uh, being in that constant state of development when it comes to being a little more mental tough and overcoming challenges a little more quickly next time adversity strikes. So it, uh, but yeah, he he was one of the people that had gotten injured uh, twice before. He had done a good portion of Hell Week twice already. (laughs) He'd been at Bud's for 10 months and then rolled into our class. We run six classes a year. So uh, every couple months, a new class will, will be called class up or they'll begin first phase. And so he rolled into our class and yeah, I remember, you know, like it was yesterday, just seeing him and just, you know, utterly intimidating, just, you know, <laughs> big guy, never smiled once. And, <laughs> but I don't think that was, that was driven really by, you know, uh, the hardness for lack of a better term that he developed in that determination to finish, you know, he'd been rolled back twice and that's very, uh, demoralizing to some, uh, to others, uh, it can be uh, the fuel they need to overcome that challenge. Uh, my most recent mentee, for example, uh, lost his mom one week before he checked into Butts. Uh, kid, very similar to me, he you know had already gone to college. He was working you know in a finance job in Miami. He actually grew up right here in San Diego, ten minutes from where I now live. And uh, I met him because uh, my wife had met his mom at a charity event. And then literally two weeks after my wife Nicole met his mom. She died suddenly in a car in Manhattan from a brain aneurysm on a girl's trip, like with, with some other moms. And totally unexpected. Uh, and as you can imagine, what a gut punch that would be before you're checking into what's one of the most challenging <laughs> military training programs known to man. Uh, what does that do to a person? Uh, and he's, he's a great kid, very quiet, very focused, mild-mannered. Um, and then he got... Uh, he got injured uh, during, uh, I think it was right before Hell Week for a back injury. So he got rolled back and then he classed up again when he healed and then he went into, uh, and then he went through Hell Week and uh, got through Hell Week and a horrible Hell Week. It's like God knows when Hell Week starts because it rains like every day and it never rains in San Diego. It's wonderful. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like, oh, must, must be a Hell Week going on right now because it is horrible weather. Uh and then he came into another evolution soon after Hell Week and got rolled for um, whatever whatever perceived underperformance it was. So you can't get rolled more than twice uh, these days. That you know it's it's two and that's it. If you if you have a hiccup a third time, you're done. So uh, <laughs> I remember joking. I was like Charlie, <laughs> stop messing around, dude. <laughs> you're making me nervous. Strap everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And just to please just I know you like it there, but uh, just keep going forward. And uh, and then he, you know, he he's now a, um, an operator at, at Team Three. Just a great guy. And uh, but yeah, I know it's interesting. David, David and I were in the same boat crew. Um, so we <laughs> spent a lot of time together in those early days. And then as the class gets smaller and smaller, it becomes very much a, a team sport. And you learn a lot about each other. And then he and I both were assigned to team five. So um, obviously spent more time in the teams. We were, we were in different uh, troops. We called them um, uh, task units back then. But uh, so we didn't work a lot together because when you're in a different platoon or different troop uh, than someone else, you're 
training scenarios are all different. You have different travel schedules, different deployment schedules. So. Very, very interesting. So just so I want to go on one thing and then we'll get to the deployments and kind of move forward. But I've had people that have been on that became SEALs pre 9-11. They were already in the teams and then 9-11 kicked off. I had some that, you know, kind of retired out before 9-11 happened, a lot that got into it because or after 9-11. But you were literally, you know, straddling SEAL training when it hit. So from the inside, just, I mean, no, I'm not talking about operationally as far as anything that you shouldn't be talking about, but just the the training, the mindset, the philosophy, what was that shift when you found yourselves in war? Uh, it, the shift was... Um was what you could probably imagine. It was uh, it was one of extreme focus, more so than you would already naturally have or need to have just going through the training, uh, knowing that you know within you know twenty four or forty eight hours of the towers falling, we had tier one boots on the ground, you know, over there, and knowing that you know back then, I would say in retrospect, uh, you know, looking back in the you know near history of how sometimes these types of conflicts can come and go very quickly. There was also a mindset of, you know, let's work hard, let's let's do our best and let's get over there as quickly as we can uh, to put these skills to use and uh, take the fight to the enemy. Um, and so obviously some, you know, some teams who already it's very much timing based too, who are, you know, just finished their work up and their deployable assets are already overseas, uh, were, were spun up to go in country uh, in Afghanistan and surrounding areas. And then uh, our timing or my timing for me was um that uh, I cycled into Team Five, uh, joined a platoon, and then we started our work up. And then shortly thereafter, there were rumors of conflict in Iraq and uh, and all that. So we actually, uh, my task unit, or we call it a troop now, at Team Five was the very first task unit deployed into Iraq, working predominantly in uh, Baghdad, Ramadi, and Fallujah, and some other areas uh, in early 2003. So literally right after Baghdad fell almost little to no infrastructure over there whatsoever. Uh, we're living in, you know, bombed out buildings or, you know, some old section of a, of a palace. The, the big army had taken over all the good ones already. <laughs> so, I wasn't staying in the opulent, uh, opulent uh, rooms of, uh, uh, you know, of royalty by any means. But, uh, but it was, it was real. I mean, obviously Afghanistan had been raging for a while and uh, really learning to put your trade uh, to the test and your training to the test, you really don't know how well trained you are until you put it in a real scenario where, you know, the people shooting back at you are shooting real bullets and you're actually learning how to apply close quarters combat skills, uh, during real war times. And, um, it, that also was a pretty fascinating learning experiment, understanding, you know, how prepared, how well prepared we truly were. Now, something I always ask, uh, members of the military, because you know, I myself never served in, in the military specifically, um, and so as a civilian, even though I'm a first responder, you know, we we get one of two views usually, depending on which you know news station you turn on. Either the military are a bunch of baby killers, or kill them all, let God sort them out. In the middle ground, the actual things that these men and women do, these men and women see, it is lost in in the extreme reporting. So. When you deployed over there, you know, what were, were there any things that stuck out to you, any, any kind of specific incidences where you realized that despite whatever the reason was that you found yourself in that place, that you saw atrocities? I mean, it's usually from what I hear, you know, Afghanis on Afghanis or Iraqis on, on Iraqis, but where, where you, you saw that there was evil, that, 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 you know, this mission 
that you had a job to do. There were people to protect because that doesn't really get reported to the people back home, in my opinion. It, it, it's 100% that. I mean, it's it's first and foremost the mission. Secondly, you know, the person to your left and right, that keeps it very simple. Uh, you know, I'm there to protect person on my left, person on my right. They're doing the same, which creates an overlapping web of performance, regardless of why you're there, what your politics are, um, and uh, and funneling that into the completion of the mission. Uh, now, obviously, you know, everybody has their own views. Some some people in the military and special operations are highly political. Some are not political at all. Some fall somewhere in between, uh, you know, just like in normal society. Um, but it does come back to your point to uh, the extreme evil uh, and violence. And I just remember uh, and, and which only got worse as uh, the insurgency started to pick up and you're talking about public crucifixions and children being murdered on the street, uh, people being lit on fire. Uh, and then also just just the simple things around, you know, those early days when we were doing our capture or kill missions, hunting down, you know, bad guys on the deck of cards or blacklist or, you know, other various insurgent faction leaders. You know, you more or less have a, a, at least a little bit sometimes of a dossier of who these people are. And outside of funding terrorist attacks or attacks on military convoys or associated with the loss of American lives or actually having taken American lives, a lot of these people were like rapists and child molesters and murderers and torturers of civilians uh, before the war began. So <laughs> it's uh, it, it made things really clear uh, and really easy uh, as to what the job needed to be. Uh, so that, yeah, you kind of teed that up nicely because that really does tie into it. And, and anybody who've experienced anything like that would tell you the same thing, having been over there. And then also just the the things that really, really deeply pull at your heartstrings when you're talking about the non-combatants and, you know, scenarios we were in sometimes. And, you know, many, many have, you know, again, my contribution to the special operations community wildly pales in comparison to, to so many. But, um, you know, the timing was such that I obviously got to experience certain things and, you know, let's say you're hitting a target and, you know, there's two or three bad guys there. Maybe one is your high value target, but there's also two or three generations of families. There's grandparents, there's wives, there's children, there's babies. Uh, you know, I remember one time we did an explosive breach on a target and, you know, lo and behold, who's sleeping in the front room, but one of the moms and two, two of the four year old girls. Uh, bad guys were in the back and, uh, you know, the mom was severely injured. Um, you know, you find yourself one minute in a gunfight and the next minute your rifle is slung and you're carrying two, four year old girls who are barefoot in their PJs, uh, to safety because there's glass all over the floor because you blew a hole in their front of their house. So it's, it's, it's having that ability to, to dial up your intensity and dial it down and be an empathetic warrior, uh, to understand that most of the people over there in these areas are not bad. <laughs> you know, they're, they, they want to live a good life. Uh, they've just live in, uh, in that environment, uh, you know, for all or the majority of their lives already. So it's kind of what they expect. Yeah. Well, that seems to be another common thread as well from, you know, the, the men and women that, that serve, that, that tell their stories on here is just that, that they were also struck by the fact that there was a mother and a father, you know, and the dad was fixing the car and the kid was, you know, kicking a football in the backyard and, I think, again, one of the very irresponsible reporting things that we see here is we're at, at war with Iraq. We're at war with Afghanistan. And it's like, no, you're, you're, you, you guys are out there hunting down these extreme murderers within these countries. But it, the other people are trying to, to exist, just like Serbia and Bosnia and all these other places we see these atrocities. The other men and women and children are just trying to survive in the middle of this war zone. Right. Yeah, it's... Uh... 
Uh, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's made to be very simplistic uh, and binary uh, when it comes to reporting uh, as far as you know what you know, the military is doing in these regions. It's far more complex than that. Yeah. Well, one thing that struck me from uh, one of the chapters in the book, you talk about, you know, make an entry on a particular building. Um, and, you know, the, the, the uh, I think the wife of one of the people that you're hunting was struck by one of your bullets. And you just, it was one sentence, and I, I wish I could forget what it was now, but it just implied that the collateral damage element of the job that you were, you know, asked and, and paid to do was was a weight that, that was heavy for you. And I don't think it's something that a lot of people acknowledge that you know you're not in world war 1 you're not in a trench shooting at another trench where there's a clear definition between this side and that side so you don't have to be specific but you know what what was that like for you Brent Gleason specifically you know, the the collateral damage element of you know your missions yeah i mean that's you're absolutely right the the, the you know the the mindset and behavior associated with uh, urban warfare and close quarters combat is very, very different than, you know, sometimes land warfare, uh, longer range warfare, or like you said, the old days of firing from trench to trench, hoping maybe your bullet connects with a bad guy. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, that's not, you know, that's, that's not that environment in, you know, these urban settings. Um, or when you're doing these direct action assaults where you're trying to, you know, catch the bad guy, uh, to gather intel, uh, or whatever the outcome, uh, is supposed to be. And, you know, like we talked about a few minutes ago, the, these targets, especially, uh, in the early days, I mean, these, you know, the bad guys will engage in whatever sort of crappy trade craft, you know, moving from house to house and things like that. But most of them are, you know, in the early days are just, we're still predominantly living in and around their current neighborhoods. <laughs> it's kind of weird, actually. Uh, we used to joke about it, but, uh, but again, these targets have non-combatants on them almost every single time there. I mean, and I can only think of a few, uh, that, you know, were dry holes, of course, where nobody's there or dry holes where there's no, clearly no bad guys there, just some women and children. Um, you know, most of them were a mix. And then, you know, there's a couple where it was just all, you know, hardened bad guys, uh, which is what the Intel stated. But the one particular story you're talking about, you know, it started off bad from, you know, it's the, the old no plan survives first contact with the enemy. You know, first we had crappy intel <laughs> or, you know, inconsistent intel, not to be disrespectful <laughs> to our agency partners at the time. Um, so the target house looked vastly, as soon as we breached the target, it looked vastly different on the interior than the source had mentioned. Um, and because of the layout, we were immediately spread thin. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain just while we're talking about it, but uh, spread thin, meaning we had a lot of uh, threats, you know, open doors, corridors, you know, and, uh, and large open areas that needed to be secured rather quickly. Um, you know, the high value target we were going after, uh, we had never experienced this before, but we did a, you know, explosive breach, blew the door, and first person we see charging right at us was uh, the high value target. Um, and so, you know, the first two or three in the stack, you know, took care of him. Uh, but a few of those rounds, you know, penetrated through and, and hit, uh, who we found out later was his wife in the hips. Uh, that, that's a pretty traumatic injury because it's very hard to quickly put, as you know, any type of compression, you know, as to where those, uh, bullets entered. Um, and of course we can't, you know, that being now a hot target with Shots fired. Uh, we couldn't render any significant medical aid, medical aid until the you know the fight was won, um, and uh, yeah, and, and so then you know another you know, then we pressed on and you know obviously I ended up having to take immediate action on um, you know on one of the fighters in one of the rooms and you know it's like I just remember thinking like God this 
kid can't be more than 19 years old, you know? And I mean, yes, it was a scenario that needed to happen, but you know, you look at, you know, the woman bleeding out over there, this, you know, guy I just killed and he's probably 19 years old. And you know, those things, I don't care who you are, you know, if they say they don't weigh on you, you're maybe a sociopath, <laughs> but it, uh, you know, they, they do. And, and of course, you know, I can't fathom what, you know, uh, the guys and girls who've uh, done so many more combat deployments than I have, you know, year after year and coming home to your family and going back out and uh, having those types of experiences for years and years and years and years, for 20 years, you know, it's, uh, you can only imagine from a mental health standpoint, uh, how that wears not just on the operator, but the resilience of the family on marriage, on our ability to effectively raise our children, uh, and also just effectively uh, maintain our own, you know, personal health. Yeah, well, I know you mentioned as well about uh, divorce. Um, was that while you were still deploying or was it after the military? It was after, but it was a, uh, a relationship that had blossomed while I was in. So it was, uh, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll be nice. I'll just say I wasn't seeing the red flags per se for what they were because I was never home. Um, and then it, uh, and then when I transitioned out, I dove headfirst into graduate school, started the concepts of my first company in graduate school. So, you know, again, it, it takes two, but, uh, so I wasn't, you know, uh, emotionally there either. I was focusing on my next, you know, course in life and, you know, my, and new lofty goals. So, um, that, you know, that came to a very abrupt end later on and, uh, uh I'll spare the details, but let's just say I was turned into a full-time, not part-time, full-time single parent of a two and a half year old, uh, while <laughs> trying to build two companies. Um, and I don't have to spare the details, but living in the state of California, having full custody, that shows you that things are pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, Florida's the same. So I, yeah. I can relate. And again, not throwing mud, but yeah, at one point it was very, very similar. When I was on shift, I had my little boy and he was about the same age. And I was going through paramedic school as well. So it was 24 hours on shift, then eight hours in a classroom, then another 12 hours doing clinicals while still, you know, as soon as, as I'm done with those, picking him up and being a dad. And yeah, it's, it's again, something I think that people need to understand is you have these layers of pressure, of stress, of mental ill health, whatever you want to call it, you know, contributing factors. And if we don't factor them all in, I think that's how we miss men and women that fall through the cracks. But I mean, these are all significant stresses for, for anyone. Well, and, and as you recall, uh, I would I would imagine, you know, since we had this kind of similar experiences in that regard, uh, there, there are legacy some challenges, uh, I think, that um, still exist when it comes to, you know, now, you know, I've been married you know, for 10 years. We have a total of four children now and, you know, primary custody of uh, of uh, our oldest, my, you know, my first, uh, who's now a freshman in high school. But uh, and, and you know, my wife and I were were, were very uh, proactive and and uh, when it comes to therapy and, and counseling and things like that, I really believe in that. I think it's very very healthy if you feel like you have a challenge or not. <laughs> Just you know, uh, sharing uh, challenges or experiences with uh, a professional or or you know or a mentor or a trusted peer or family member. But um, you know, I've been told that I carry guilt uh for those years um because of you know I, it, again that relationship was i'm glad it was over you know it was, it was about as toxic as it could possibly be it was a blessing um but a very significant obstacle uh and i my initial reaction was to be stoic i remember i even because i knew the rumor mill was going to fly around real quick and being the ceo of a new company you know a startup we weren't that big so there's probably only you know, 30 or 40 employees i knew they would find out and i wanted them to 
hear it from me as opposed to make their own assumptions about what happened and how that was going to impact me. And I called a company meeting. I was like, you know, put my seal cap on. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let this impact me. I'm going to lead this business. You know, I'll take care of what I need to take care of, but don't worry. And it was total bullshit. Well, I didn't think it was bullshit. At the time, <laughs> it you didn't say bullshit. that at the end, by the way, this is yeah, all bullshit. I, I <laughs> no, no, I was actually pretty torn up about all this. Um, and also with the, um, the notion that I had to prioritize my son over anything else. Um, and ultimately I'll, I'll get back to, you know, what we're talking about, but ultimately I, I had to make the decision to temporarily step down as CEO. Uh, and that was one of the most humbling, uh, entrepreneurial experiences I've had, but it was the right thing for the business. And it was the right thing for me at the time. I didn't leave the business, but I, I really had to uh, be responsible and focusing on my time and energy on, yeah, I mean, you know, being a full-time single parent, it's, uh, not an easy, not an easy thing to do regardless of how badass you might think you are. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I think I do carry a lot of guilt for those years of Tyler having to experience that. And, uh, you know, I, him waking up screaming in the night asking where mommy is. And, you know, there was no ex- real good explanation because let's just say mommy was at rehab for a long time. <laughs> so I couldn't I had to I had to lie to him. You know, I, you know, it's like mommy's at you know, getting well, you know, was what I was there. Mommy's at the doctor. And, you know, uh, and then you know, the, another year would go by and he's getting a little older, a little more cognizant of his surroundings and reality. So it. um and I, you know, when I could, I was, you know, a full-time Disneyland dad. I, you know, I was, I would spoil the hell out of him. I'd say yes to everything um, and bend over backwards for whatever he wanted. And, you know, I think we dealt with a little bit of that. Uh, <laughs> the ripple effect. <laughs> the ripple effect of that, you know, leading into, um, you know, his, uh, from, you know, five, six, you know, on and when Nicole came into our life. And um, and so it, uh, you know, it, it, it's tough. I mean, he's a great kid, but. Uh, it, uh, definitely is, uh, a challenge that many, many people out there face. I mean, the divorce rate's high, uh, not all of those situations are as dramatic, uh, but you know, it is, um, it is something that, uh, many of us inevitably, inevitably face. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, that's, that's an interesting point that you just made as well, as far as, you know, severity, it's irrelevant the same as, you know, trauma you know i've had people on here that, that were sexually abused as children and i've had people on there that were the middle child that that just you know for that particular dynamic felt unloved by the parents you know it doesn't matter what happened but yeah i mean that that relationship element is 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 very very uh is a powerful contributor to to either growth and healing if it's a if it's a beautiful cohesive home which is what i've got now or very very toxic if it's the reverse yeah. And that's why we have four kids, buddy, because uh, so there's two middle children. They can support each other. There we go. Oh, I just had one. They were the, he's the oldest, the youngest and the middle. <laughs> um, all right. Well, then, so I'd love to hear about your transition, because, again, this seems to be another thing, you know, in, in first responders, in the military, where men, some men and women struggle, you know, where they identify as the SEAL, as the firefighter, as the cop. And when they transition out, whether it's retirement, injury, um, you know, some of them lose that identity and sometimes lose themselves. So what was your decision to transition out? And then how was that process for you personally? The my transition strategy, not not that I at the time spent a lot of time doing the research on, you know, a successful military transition. But I, I did know one thing which was similar to my transition in, which was to have a good, concise measurable and executable plan. 
uh, you know, that's how I was you know, thankfully successful navigating into the SEAL teams. And then uh, coming out, uh, I, uh, I obviously looked, you know, did some research on you know, what career path, you know, made the most sense, you know, do I go back into, you know, the brief career I had in, you know, you know, commercial real estate finance development, do I do something different, uh, possibly higher education or graduate school. Um, ultimately I came to the decision that grad school and I have a lot of, you know, friends and colleagues who did the same thing or, or go back to college for undergrad or whatever that might be, um, is, was a great segue, uh, because it was almost transitional, uh, in its own experience because it wasn't jumping right into a new career head first with no experience. It wasn't, it was a, it was another learning uh, environment, which is very much similar to being in the military. You're in a constant state of learning. You're always taking uh, new courses and going to schools and being in a, expected to be in a constant state of personal and professional development. So for me, uh, I felt that going back to school to, um, get a, you know, business degree MBA was, uh, uh, was a good transition. So I actually took the, uh, the GMAT, the, you know, the test to, to, to get into most grad schools, uh, before my last deployment. <laughs> so I studied for it, took some courses. It's funny. I remember it being kind of, uh, somewhat competitive, uh, not that seals are competitive with one another at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, there's, a, I think two other guys, um, at, at the team who are transitioning at the same time, all, you know, each all, two the two I'm talking about had, uh, there were others, but the two I'm talking about had a very similar transition strategy, which was to go to grad school. And we were all, taking the GMAT similar time. And you know, I was taking like a hardcore GMAT prep course and studying every night. And, <laughs> and one of my other buddies who did, he, you know, he's a SEAL officer, done his undergrad at Stanford and was, you know, applying to Harvard and all that stuff. He, he went to his GMAT course one night and he's like, yeah, this is a bunch of BS. I'll just do it on my own. And like, aced the test. <laughs> whereas, whereas I studied like a slave and, you know, did good enough <laughs> to get into the school that I was planning on going to. So it, um, it was kind of funny, but, uh, that was, uh, it was a great experience, uh, not just for the academics, which, you know, in my opinion is just a small, uh, cog on the wheel of, of that sort of higher education strategy, but it was the networking. Uh, it was, um, it was just a good transitional period. I started my program literally a week after I left the Navy. So another piece of my strategy was to have zero downtime, uh, not in a bad way, but, um, but, uh, I had had enough downtime as I was kind of starting to transition out for about a month. And it, uh, uh when I'd got back from that last deployment and, uh, I wanted no downtime outside of the teams. Uh, cause what I've seen too is, you know, when any military, uh, professional is transitioning out, um, the longer they have downtime or if they don't have quite a concise plan getting out, uh, a lot of things can seep in uh, that either take them down the wrong direction. Uh, it can actually um, exacerbate possibly even mental health challenges that they might already have because there's no other distraction uh, other than um, dwelling, so to speak, um, or finding um, improper coping mechanisms. So for me, it was just stay the course of violent execution, <laughs> get out, transition, jump into something else. Grad school was a good segue because it wasn't jumping into a new career and it gave me time to develop um, some interest. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, similar to military service, entrepreneurship was nowhere on my radar screen whatsoever at that time. And yet, once again, somewhere along the line, I found a taste for calculated risk and uh, there was an opportunity, uh, a couple of us, you know, with, it actually was one of our finance projects in grad school that 
became the foundation of a business plan that became my first company. So it, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was another, you know, entrepreneurship. I think the success of a startup has about the same failure rate as SEAL training. So I was like, hey, might as well. <laughs> <laughs> but that's interesting, though. So because you had the discipline, you had the routine, you, rather than allow that to all fall off and then have to create it again from ground up, you took that same momentum and you just applied it to the next chapter. Yeah, and that and it kind of goes into, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard this uh, quite a bit, but when when you ask folks about, you know, if you had to, you know, what are some of the key takeaways that you have applied uh, or could apply uh, in your personal professional life after military service? One of them being, you know, having that ability to develop good plans and, and good strategies, but also having the, you know, the grit and fortitude to take calculated risk, you know, not dumb, blind risk. I, I joke in the book about how do we know when we've taken calculated risk? It's when the dumb, crazy shit we decide to do works out. <laughs> so in retrospect, you're like, that was calculated risk, not a stupid decision. Um, but uh, in, in all seriousness, obviously, that's one. Uh, the ability to manage stress and anxiety is another. Um, and, and so, uh, which, again, the, I was jumping into something else that I knew nothing about. I mean, we had, you know, every entrepreneur who has at least enough energy uh, and focus uh, and a quote-unquote good business plan in their hand Um envisions that very cliche journey of building the business and they found this great white space and they're going to flip it in five years and make a ton of money and then go do it again. That rarely happens. We hear about those stories, but <laughs> you only hear about the wins. You don't hear about everyone else who uh, the business either fails immediately or doesn't grow as quick or has other common challenges of, it, of any uh, startup or new business. So it was, it was challenging, but you know, having that ability to kind of eventually lean back into the same mindset uh, uh, and some of the rituals that you know got me into the teams and, and through that stuff uh, were pretty applicable in navigating the uh, the new battlefield of business and entrepreneurship. Right. Well, when you said about takeaways, I think one, one important thing I need to ask you about is fear. So just to, to give you a personal anecdote, I went skydiving in New Zealand. And this is way before I became a firefighter. I was terrified of heights at the time. And I'm not going to lie, I, I basically shit my pants. I, we were at McDonald's right before. I, I spent a lot of time in the bathroom. You know, my, my girlfriend at the time was the one that actually signed us up. And we we did the jump. And I swear to God, when my feet hit the ground, I was like, how do I sign up to, to become an instructor? And what I realized, what was crippling was the imagined fear. What I had, what I had manufactured it was going to be like versus reality. So, you know, what, what as, as your time, not only in the SEALs, but now, you know, in the entrepreneurial space, um, you know, what, through your lens, what have you seen as far as a crippling effect of the, the fear of the unknown in people, you know, making brave decisions in their life? Oh, that's a great question. I love, I love how you uh, frame that in perceived fear uh, versus the reality of, you know, what's your emotional response uh, will be when put in, you know, those uh, arduous situations that sometimes we choose, sometimes we don't choose. Um, you know, for example, the guy I uh, trained with to go into SEAL training, my college buddy, uh, he and I both uh, became licensed skydivers. And he was at the time terrified of heights, but he was intentional in his practice. And that was one of the ways he overcame that fear is by doing the thing that you would fear the most <laughs> when, you know, jumping out of planes. Um, and uh, it's, it is an interesting thing. And when, you know, when we face 
the fear of failure. Uh, that's another thing that is very distracting to students going through buds or, you know, the young entrepreneur with the business plan. And well, what if this fails? I've read all the statistics. <laughs> you know, I said, yes, I believe in myself and I believe in the idea. But, you know, what if this does in fact fail like 90 percent of them do? Um, it's uh, when it's looked at uh, and channeled uh, in a proper way. You know, we always talk about, you know, people talk about courage. Well, Courage is in the absence of fear. It's what we do with that energy and our emotional response to fear and how we push forward. And the more frequently we find ways to you know, navigate fear and uncertainty and complexity. Uh, and when we come out the other end, maybe completely unscathed or just a little bit scathed and you look back and you're like, okay, well, that, that wasn't so bad. Uh, I'll give a a very basic example, you know, we've talked enough about SEAL stuff, but, you know, something that might resonate, you know, for me as a student and teacher of leadership and as a CEO, I'm also, you know, just by nature, uh, a leader of our organization. One of the things, and this has been through, you know, my own developmental uh, practices, mentorship, 360 reviews, peer reviews, um, is that I, I have historically struggled with you know, having with conflict resolution and having the challenging conversations, whether it be with uh, an employee who's struggling or someone I have to let go or an angry board member who's going to yell at me about the P&L or a client who's our biggest account. And I know he's about to cancel. <laughs> you know, I've always been like, well, oh, I'm going to do that on Thursday. And then Thursday comes. I'm like, you know, I'm super busy. I think I'll do that Monday. That sounds like a Monday kind of thing because I just don't want to have a conversation. And my wife harps me about this all the time because it's the same way with sometimes with her, with her kids. Uh, you know, on the real battlefield, I'll happily run towards the sound of gunfire. But when it comes to that type of thing, I've struggled with that in the past. I've gotten better at it through, like we talked about, intentional practice, feedback, mentorship, and and learning some tools uh, that help me tackle those types of really easy things head on. And I mean, we've all been in those types of situations, the conversation you just are dreading or the situation you're dreading that you have to resolve. And oftentimes, once you go head first, you go all in, you realize, OK, well, that, I guess that wasn't so bad. I could do that again. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, and, it, and I realized also the problem wasn't as uh, big of an obstacle as I originally thought, um, kind of to your point about the reality of your skydiving experience and the horror that you thought you would you would have versus you know, uh, being elated when you hit the ground. I found that too with skydiving. People either are like, I am never doing that again. Glad I did, but doing that again or obsessed. I'm addicted. So, and that could be the same thing with overcoming any type of, of fear challenge uh, in life. But it goes back into what I talk about in the book around developing grit and mental fortitude and being intentional in the fine art of comfort zone expansion is making lists of those things that make us cringe. The obstacles that we don't like to overcome yet that are inevitable for the goals we're trying to achieve or the relationships we're trying to build or uh, the developmental practices we want to engage in to have a better life. Uh, well, make a list of those things and practice them with intention. Uh, and the more you do, the wider your comfort zone becomes. And then you move the goalpost a little bit further back and you keep going down that path until um, those challenges or sometimes obstacles that seem wildly insurmountable uh, become part of your everyday life. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, cause it even resonates with me with uh, the aerial that we have, the 110-foot ladder um, on the back of the truck. And, you know, I found that if I didn't climb it you know, regularly, every single week, that pucker factor would start to return. But as long as I took, you know, took my weekly climb, if we weren't getting, you know, fires and actually using it properly, it, it kind of mitigated some of that fear of the unknown. But the, the longer um, time there was between when I had climbed it 
the uh, the more that that fear you know grew. I mean, it propagates like a, mu- a mushroom, and if you don't keep addressing whatever skill set that you're using to keep that fear at bay, it's just lurking in the shadows, waiting to come back. Okay, well, my, my turn to ask a question because I'm glad we're on the topic. <laughs> it's you're talking about climbing a ladder because of your fear of heights. What about the fact that you could potentially be climbing that ladder to go into a burning building? Now, I, I'm saying this actually in all in all seriousness when we're talking about overcoming fear when it comes to uh, uh, people in your line of work. How how do they how do you train for that? You know, the the concept of for for me to willingly go into a burning building, regardless of the fact that you're there to save lives and that's your passion and purpose seems just, I can't even wrap my head around it. <laughs> so like, wh- how do you, or have you, what, what has your experience been with that? But when we're, since we're on the topic of overcoming, you know, what is, is what I would perceive to be a significant uh, challenge when it comes to fear. Um, I just, as you guys do, and it's something I talk about a lot with, you know, with your community is, it's repetition, it's realism and training, you know, because I mean, it's, it's a cliche phrase, but I think it's so true. You fall to your level of training. So if your training has been, you know, an annual, you know, climb of that ladder, for example, an annual burn in the burn building with a, with a wooden pallet and some hay on fire, then your bar is very low. So I've always sought, you know, training, even with that ladder. I want the fear to be whatever I see when I get to the top of the ladder. I don't want, you know, the ladder to be, an element that scares me. So if I can train all these things that are detached from the the chaos that is an actual fire, then I remove those from the fear spectrum, as it were. But I think another thing that I've learned from, you know, speaking of mindset, some of the people I've had on here talking about flow state is we have we have the stress that's required already, but you have to have that that repetition, that high level of training. And then if we have those two I'm sure a lot of people listening will say, when we're in the fire, we barely even think about it. You just go in and you, you do your job. It's after the fact that you, you know, you might go, Oh my God, when you look at the building or, you know, it kind of <laughs> hits you after, but, um, but you can't get into that flow state if you haven't had that training and that realism and that's those stresses while you're training. So I think that's a great question, but I, I, we basically, I model myself on how you guys are selected, how you guys train, how you maintain fitness standards. And I wish that we could mirror that in the fire and police because I think it would elevate all of us. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's this for that same reason. It's why we do predominantly do everything with live fire, uh, real ammunition, real demolition, uh, real scenarios, and sometimes, uh, to your point, creating scenarios that might even be vastly more challenging, scary, or complex than a basic combat uh, operation um, so that you don't have to level up. You're already leveled up uh, when you're in that scenario. And uh, I remember you know, the <laughs> first gunfight any of us had ever been in uh, back in that first 03 deployment uh, and we were, again, we were doing, uh, urban environments as capture or kill stuff. And, uh, so most gunfights we got in were, you know, in someone's front hall or living room or in a stairwell. Uh, so, and re- when reflecting back, like you said earlier, you don't think about it in the moment. I mean, it could last 10 minutes. It could last 30 seconds, could last an hour. It go, it just, you're just really, uh, intently focused on uh your job uh and the job of the person uh, your left and right and looking out for them and uh and there is no fear in, the, in that situation and that's again not to sound macho or brave <laughs> it's just because of your training and preparedness uh like you said looking back you're like wow <laughs> 
my night vision goggles got blown off by an AK-47 round from an enemy fighter from 10 feet away, so that could have turned out badly. <laughs> but in the moment, uh, you're focused on the completion of the operation. Uh, so it, um, it is kind of an interesting and almost fascinating uh, mindset uh, experiment when you think about you know the job that you do and the job that operators do uh, and how fear does and does not play a factor into it. Yeah, no, it is. And another another thing I wanted to kind of pick your brains on before we transition to talking about the book, in the mental health space, what I've realized is if someone's gone to a dark place and, you know, fortunately they found the tools that work for them, whether it was a therapist, whether it was psilocybin, whether it was, you know, EMDR, whatever it was, they they come out the other side. Maybe they're doing some altruistic practices now that's helping them grow as well. But by addressing that mental injury, as it were, that fostered resilience. So if they, if they'd just been left alone with all those traumas, they, they would have got, you know, basically weaker and weaker. They would have got more and more injured. Um, with, with resilience, you know, that you've seen in your career and, and now, um, you know, and, and the grit side as well. What have you witnessed as far as, you know, needing, needing to, to, to zero out again, needing to, to reboot, to, to offload some stuff, to foster resilience, whether it's physically or mentally. Yeah, it, it's a, there's a few areas I think we should touch on there. You know, one is, you know, that, uh, actually this <laughs> plays nicely into the past year we've all been through with, uh, working in a virtual environment and social isolation and other challenges that have come with COVID. Um, we've worked with some of our clients on you know, resilience in that regard uh, as well and making sure uh, that they engage in appropriate wellness practices and taking breaks and uh, having a balanced life. You know, it's more important than ever. But um, one thing that's really been interesting if we, you know, talking about the from the military angle is that we have seen and this has been an intentional uh, and by design over the years, you know, having been at war for so long uh, that, you know, people associate things like mental health issues and post-traumatic stress disorder with veterans. Well, <laughs> when you've been at war for 20 years and you have people in the military for a career, you're talking about active military and operators uh, who are struggling with TBI and PTSD, but yet their job is associated with what caused those <laughs> ailments. <laughs> so it's these we ha we have had to change the the mindset and the culture uh, and the stigma around being proactive in talking about it, in addressing it, and more importantly, providing resources uh, for not just our veterans, but for for the P and your line of work too, for for first responders, for people who are actively doing the job day in and day out. I mean, gosh, they need it more than anybody. Um, because they're also simultaneously supporting a family, yet they're doing their dangerous job, yet they, they suffer from PTSD or uh, traumatic brain injury. And it's been uh, really rewarding to see, and I, I get to see this firsthand uh, um, as an executive board member of the SEAL Family Foundation, uh, where our main mission is family resilience within the Naval Special Warfare community. So one of those uh, initiatives, and we started doing research into uh, traumatic brain injury a few years ago and, you know, pushing for NSW to be proactive in uh, not just the study of it, but engaging in providing uh, real treatment for, for active duty operators, not just guys who transition out or are veterans. But um, it's it's been great to see the culture shift uh, and the not elimination of, but the uh, lightening of that stigma associated with getting help and seeking counseling and talking about it. 
And I've, I've been even seen that on social media, for example, uh, with a lot of transitioned operators, tier one operators and guys talking about it, guys building businesses around it, uh, whether that is yoga or a CBD brand or uh, other types of, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, surf therapy, art therapy. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. Guys aren't just, you know, they're continuing to give back. And also, and give back in multiple ways, not just by giving jobs to other veterans, but also creating a business, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, around uh, helping others, you know, w- w- with their mental health challenges. Um, you know, for me too, obviously in its simplest form, uh, I find that one of the best ways uh, to deal with those challenges is through wellness practices and fitness. And uh, my wife's, you know, used to be big into yoga and is trying to get back more into it. And I used to be like, wow, yoga, well, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, but yoga, meditation, it's not just about going to run a hundred miles or, you know, uh, you know, do triathlons and, and ultras. Uh, that can be great too. Uh, pretty bad for your body. Unfortunately, you know, when I'm old and sore all the time, but, um, but also just finding ways that are good for you. It's, it's everybody uh, responds differently to different types of wellness practices, but, but again, being intentional about it, being proactive about it, and being responsible about it, uh, because as an accountable individual who uh, is self-aware enough to know they have some mental health challenges, wherever those come from, uh, if you're a husband, a spouse, a parent, a colleague, <laughs> a leader, it's your responsibility to take action. Uh, and because those um, those challenges ultimately do impact uh, your ability to be a good spouse or a good parent or a good leader or a good entrepreneur, um, or, or the protector of others. If you're continuing to do, um, you know, challenging jobs. Yeah. No, I think and you mentioned TBI. It's important for people to understand other influences too. I mean, we talked about divorce, obviously what we see in your profession and my profession, but some of the lesser understood things are sleep deprivation. You know, I had Kurt Parsley on, who's a, a former SEAL talking about that. And then um, the the trauma of some of these young men and women and David Goggins, Goggins is a perfect example. What did you bring into the profession before you even put the uniform on? Because a lot of times that's actually the, the genesis of some people's true, you know, very, very dark mental health struggles. Oh, absolutely. I, I've actually seen that with you know, some close to me, whereas, um, cause I, you know, I reflect on it and cause I'm, I want to you know, help them in whatever capacity, uh, I can formally or informally, but you know, some of the, uh, some of my thought process goes into that question. Well, maybe there was, maybe there was some trauma, uh, or other challenges prior to military service that created a foundation from which, uh, deeper issues, uh, actually developed upon. Yeah. Well, I mean, just by doing this podcast, I would say probably, guessing around a third of my guests um, have had some pretty significant childhood trauma before they entered whichever profession they went to. So it's far more prominent than I think any of us realize. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, Brent, you you wrote two books. The first one is Taking Point. The second one is your new one, Embrace the Suck. So just for people listening, tell me you know, what each book is kind of directed at and uh, where people can find those. Sure. Uh, the first book, Taking Point, uh, was what inspired the foundation of my current company, Taking Point Leadership. Uh, it's really a book about uh, leading change, organizational transformation. It's a more of a business book. Um, it, some of the inspiration came, for example, books like uh, Stan McChrystal's Team of Teams uh, or their following book, One Mission, uh, and other just business books and entrepreneurship books that I've loved over the years from people like Marshall Goldsmith or Jim Collins, uh, books very focused on, uh, on leading change, uh, in an organization. 
And and what does that modern 21st century organization look like when it comes to leadership practices and engagement and the use of culture to achieve specific business outcomes? Um, so it's it, it's a business book. Uh, obviously, there's some some tie-ins to what we can learn from the uh, leadership and culture principles uh, from the world of special operations uh, and a, a few uh, you know, stories in there for context. Uh, but mostly it's really about what the business application is. Uh, and then in our work and taking point leadership, obviously you cannot transform a team or an organization or create higher levels of performance or retention or results unless you are continually developing and transforming the people <laughs> within the organization. So I was like, well, maybe there's some, cause obviously in our leadership development programs, we're, we're, we're developing individuals. There's personal growth and personal development that needs to happen there for individuals to enhance their emotional intelligence or self-awareness or ability to coach, mentor, and engage others, uh, navigate conflict, et cetera. And, uh, and I hadn't necessarily planned on writing a second book, but uh, there were some um, things there that I thought could be a really interesting, any, any, even a, a fun project when it comes to the self-help genre, which I had never read a self-help book before. So first step was maybe I should see what's out there and see what's popular. And so I, you know, did some research and, you know, found some of the more recent uh, books and, you know, with authors kind of trying to take a little grittier approach to the self-help fluff that had been out there for so many years and uh, using word, you know, like that word in their title or, you know, talk, you know, using, you know, swear words and stuff like that and just trying to be a little punchier, a little more tongue in cheek when it comes to um, the self-help personal development, um, you know, arena, which is a multi-billion dollar industry with, uh, still books and podcasts being at the, I think the top revenue drivers. And so really drawing on many of the leadership development practices and tweaking those based on some behavioral science research and psychology on how we can segue that into something very applicable to any individual in any walk of life, not just from a leadership standpoint by any means. Um, and that's where uh, the philosophy or vision for Embrace the Suck came about. So it was a book about resilience. Now, uh, I got that. I, I was with Simon and Schuster for the first one, transitioned to Hashit Books. Um, for the second one and landed that book deal with them in February of 2019. So <laughs> interestingly, going into this project, uh, I didn't know how bad 2020 was going to suck. So <laughs> selfish, selfishly, the timing was perfect. <laughs> I feel bad even saying that. But uh, in all seriousness, not to discount the loss of life due to COVID and businesses and the financial and economic struggles or civil, social and political unrest we've experienced here in the States. But um, but in all uh, reality, the book has um, done very well when it comes to being a, a tool and a source of inspiration for people who really need it right now. Um, and not not just for those who are on the floor and need to be picked up <laughs> before their ultimate de demise, but also it's kind of a good to great uh, type of uh, narrative of people that already have a baseline level of mental fortitude or success in their career or drive. And maybe they've lost sight of it. Maybe they need to level up. Maybe they need to focus. Maybe they need to take it to another level um, and uh, and or or pivot into a new path like many people, entrepreneurs and uh, professionals uh, have done over the past year uh, and people who can uh, develop their growth mindset. Uh, you know, in the moment and in retrospect, see challenges as not just inevitable, but as critical and uh, paramount for uh, for continued success. Uh, you know, it's kind of like our you know SEAL colleague, you know, Jocko would say, you know, we, when you say adversity or challenges are coming your way, he says, good, good. <laughs> you know, it gives me an opportunity <laughs> to, uh, to do that, to learn. 
you know, you know, it's 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 like that philosophy. You're, you know, from you know the variance between success and failure, however you define those two. Uh, but you know, when challenge strikes, you know, you're either winning or you're learning. You know, it's not a matter of winning or failing or winning or losing. You're winning or you're learning, and you're applying those key lessons to how you're going to course correct and be in a constant state of development. Yeah, and I think what I got from the book, you know, is is something that I've seen a lot. Um, you know, more recently as I've got older, like I said, I grew up on a farm, you know, it was, uh, it was, um, a lot of manual labor and it was very cold and wet. And, you know, as I talked about this before on here, I would be exhausted in school, in primary school and get chastised by the teacher being told I was probably watching TV too late. And I wasn't, I was lambing or, you know, (laughs) dealing with an emergency, you know, equine call with my dad or something. But, um, you know, it it was, it was, I'm so glad that it was that kind of upbringing because it was rough you know it wasn't comfortable a lot of times and i think that as i've got older and i'm in this space the same as everyone else our lives have got very very easy you know we have acs and heaters that you can set the exact temperature and you know it doesn't deviate from that and you can drive through all these places so i think that you know we 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 kind of create an environment for people to shy away from adversity so i think it's important to take stock of your own life and ask yourself, you know, are you doing that? You know, where where can you actually chase some discomfort and and start fostering some of that resilience or grit that you talked about, and therefore give you the tools to be brave when you're making decisions? Oh, absolutely, and being a responsible parent, you know, as you know, is is plays a huge role there. I, I touch on that quickly in the book on the you know the everyone gets a trophy culture and you know how we look at adversity for our children. When is it too late? You know, when is it too early? to teach our kids to embrace the suck. <laughs> and it, uh, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking about myself. I, I've battled with that quite a bit. You know, people think, oh, well, your background is a, a seal or, you know, that he's probably the militant one in the household, but <laughs> it's actually my wife who's, uh, uh, a little bit more regimented than I am. And, uh, that's one of my personal challenges is being a little too soft and, you know, we don't live on a farm. So, you know, it's, you kind of have to find work, uh, and find a uh, challenge uh, for, uh, you know, for the kids these days when, you know, as a six year old, their biggest o- challenge to overcome is that their iPad battery died, you know, <laughs> which is a catastrophic uh, event, as you can imagine, for a young person. these days. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, those are, those are your two books. So the first of the closing questions I love to ask, is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend? Now, it can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely unrelated. Yeah, you know, I get that asked quite a bit. I, you know, I, I read a lot, both you know, fiction and nonfiction. Um, from a from a, um, a novel standpoint, for for lack of a better phrase, uh, I'm really enjoying uh, my my buddy Jack Carr. Uh, that's his pseudonym uh, in his books, uh, from The Terminalist to Savage Son. They've been doing really, really well. So, if you like thriller novels, sort of military and special operations based, those have been really entertaining. Uh, which sometimes we need to break away and you know read something entertaining that you really enjoy as opposed to always you know delving into books you want to learn something from, uh, which is which is great too. Um, you know I, I've always been big into uh, you know from a business and entrepreneurship standpoint, you know work by Jim Collins, you know Good to Great, Built to Last, uh, Marshall Goldsmith. I love his book uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. It really is a book, and you can apply that to a team, to an organization, to an individual, and it's really like you know kind of what we've been talking about. Is being intentional and expanding your comfort zone and understanding, you know, the mindset, the rituals, the behaviors, sometimes the principles and actions that take us to a certain level of, you know, success, whether that be in a relationship, in a team, in an entrepreneurial endeavor, in the military, 
Those aren't going to be the same necessarily. They're going to take you to the next level of performance. In fact, they almost never are. We're always going to hit plateaus uh, in our life where it's, you know, we have to decide, are we going to, are we going to shift? Are we going to level up and uh, take on the challenges and a little bit of suffering and discomfort that comes with taking it to the next level? Or are we going to plateau or even backslide a little bit. So those are a few. There's, I'm, of course, as soon as we sign off, I'll be like, damn it. <laughs> I mentioned, but um, uh, those, those are great. I really love uh, Stanley McChrystal's team of teams, very much associated with a lot of the principles um, uh, in my first book, Taking Point. So th- those are just to name a few. Beautiful. Well, I saw Jack, actually, they're making a film out of Terminal List. That's, yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward Chris to that. Pratt. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, I'm totally blank on his name now. One of the guys that was in Only the Brave. But uh, yeah, they're starting to assemble a pretty pretty strong cast for that. So I'm looking forward to that coming out. All right. Well, then speaking of that, so is there a movie and or documentary that you love? I usually I usually say uh, I usually say no because I've uh, I've never been good at answering the. <laughs> the what's your favorite movie? <laughs> so just no. Uh, I literally just I couldn't even I can I, I can never answer that question. That's maybe one of my things that I need to work on or, or have a go to list that I memorize. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I always love, uh, I do love, um, war documentaries and I actually got that from my, my dad growing up who was, uh, kind of a world war two, uh, history buff informally, but, um, always loved, um, you know, war documentaries uh, about, you know, everything from world war two to, to Vietnam, and, uh, and to, you know, the, the current, uh, co- current conflicts and, and, and of course the, not just documentaries, but the movies associated with those, obviously, um, Movies like American Sniper and Lone Survivor and, uh, you know, 12 Strong, you know, fascinating stories about heroism and bravery under extreme conditions uh, that are real stories, uh, stories of, of experiences that, you know, I can only imagine. You know, I've experienced some things, but when it comes to uh, those types of scenarios, uh, it, it's it's really fascinating because really only the people who were there or like Marcus with Lone Survivor, you know. They're the only ones who can tell the story. And that's why it's been really great to see that sort of also that that stigma uh, be lifted a bit because you can be a I think actually Jocko said this. It was an interesting uh, reflection in one of his posts, you know, about that, you know, that people being on the edge about, you know, well, we were a silent warrior, silent professional. You know, he said you, you can you can be a silent professional, but you don't have to be quiet. There are important stories and important lessons that people must know. Uh, otherwise they, they'll just get lost, uh, in time and nobody will ever understand the sacrifices that people make or, uh, what real bravery truly looks like and the perspective that just a normal individual can gain from that. Absolutely. Or that some random English firefighter will be asking you questions that will carry over to police and fire. Well, and, and only, the brave. <laughs> uh, only the brave, I mean, I've watched that movie probably 40 times, uh, because anybody who's been in your line of work or in the military, uh, very similar, very similar culture, uh, as you know, uh, when it comes to uh, extreme focus and connection to getting the job done, a job associated with saving lives, uh, but also you're, you're, the duality of <laughs> you're there to put, potentially save the lives of civilians and also save the lives of your teammates. And uh, and so, yeah, that's that's another movie that uh, I've really uh, connected with, as obviously I know <laughs> you have. And, um, you know, I, I like movies that deeply pull at your heartstrings and really put real perspective uh, on uh, on life absolutely all right well then the next question is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world oh absolutely the the list is long (laughs) um 
the uh, obviously my my brain immediately goes to uh, some of my you know t- former teammates, uh, Jason Redman. I'm not sure if you've had him on yet. I write about his story in the book, uh, but an amazing story of overcoming extreme adversity. You know, a, a combat. Uh, leader, a SEAL operator, uh, shot multiple times in the face, neck, chest, and arm, <laughs> literally almost bled out uh, on the battlefield in an extremely violent gunfight, and then got up and walked unassisted to the medevac helicopter and never looked back. Yes, and, you uh, do. <laughs> and he, well, and, and he, you know, he was, it's it's an interesting, his sort of, his transformative journey uh, it was such that he actually became so frustrated, so utterly annoyed uh, by people coming in to his hospital room and crying over his wounds and all the, you know, they're so sorry for this and the sacrifice and, you know, reflecting on the things he'll never be able to do again. Uh, And that long list of what the doctors would say his challenges were going to be that were lifelong. He was like, no, (laughs) I'm over this. He hung a sign on his door, uh, basically saying, if you're coming here for that, go somewhere else. Uh, it was much more eloquent. It's actually really uh, interesting. It's, it's in the book, but, uh, Jason Redman is one, um, uh, Remy Adeliki, uh, another former team guy, phenomenal story, great book called transformation. You know, he grew up in Nigeria <laughs> and, he's, and then segued somehow into the SEAL teams. Um, uh, uh, Bedros Koulian, the CEO of Fit Body Bootcamp, not a former military guy, but very, very inspirational, very smart. Um, and uh, he's a you know, good friend of mine. So um, I'll, I'll connect with you uh, more afterwards and send you a long list. <laughs> Beautiful. We'll keep, we'll keep you busy for a couple of years. Excellent. Well, I had Remy on and yeah, an amazing story, okay. especially as he couldn't swim before he became a SEAL. Right. And then uh, Jason, what struck me, I had him on as well. And what really blew me away, and no pun intended, was the focus of his book and everything isn't even his injuries. It was how he talks about how arrogant he was when he was a young leader and the humility that he found that ultimately led him to be a, a good leader. So you what you look at this incredible, you know, military hero that's got these amazing wounds that he's overcome. And really the story is about, you know, swallowing his ego and understanding what it's like to be a good leader. So his his books are absolutely incredible. Well, good. Then uh, we'll take those two off the list. I'll, I'll get you more. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I know David. David said that he was going to come on. I know. You know, we talked about this the other day. Um, I totally understand that people's lives, you know, undulate. But um, supposedly this was a podcast that they wanted to come on. I know he did some wildland firefighting as well. So when the time is right, hopefully we'll get him on one day as well. Yeah, uh, most communication goes through through Jennifer now, but I can ping her as well. They, they, it's based on what they're doing, sometimes they're doing stuff like this, and sometimes they just can't prioritize it but um we'll we'll get him on we'll get him on yeah there's no rush at all beautiful all right well then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find the books and where to find you what do you do to decompress uh decompression for me is uh is fitness uh you know i'm not uh a crazy person like you know like david (laughs) i don't have time i've got uh, a company to run and four children and a spouse uh to also uh make sure that i prioritize but I think you know, my main go-to when it comes to decompression is um, is fitness, and then just you know just time with time with the kids. We have you know a fourteen-year-old, seven-year-old, five-year-old, and a six-week-old. So um, sometimes just sitting on the couch feeding the baby uh, is <laughs> is a good way to decompress because uh, I know he's also going to keep keep us up all night. <laughs> yeah, back to sleep deprivation again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Beautiful. <laughs> Well, congratulations. I think you just, just had your, your little one um, right before we spoke the first time. So, yeah, congratulations again. All right. Well, then the very last question, if people want to find Taking Point Leadership, want to find your website, find you online, where are the best places for people to go? 
Sure. Our uh, company website is takingpointleadership.com. Obviously, there's information about our services and case studies, but uh, a lot of good content uh, links um, for more content around you know, leadership philosophy. I have a, a Forbes leadership column I've had for about seven years, so there's hundreds of articles on, uh, on leadership um, there. If you just Google you know, Brinkley's and Forbes, uh, my author page shows up. Uh, I have an individual website. It's just brentgleasonspeaker.com. Uh, and then I'm on social media, uh, Instagram, just Brent underscore Gleason. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, professionally, I'm on LinkedIn as well. And the book, Embrace the Suck, the Navy Seal Way to an Extraordinary Life, can be found on all online retailers, brick and mortar bookstores. Uh, and of course, you know, the from an online perspective, the you know Amazon is typically the you know, best way to go unless you prefer a you know different uh, online resource. It's, it's, it's on all of them. Beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, you know, every time someone comes on, especially when it goes to a place that's a little bit more personal, you know, a little bit more vulnerable for the, the guest, you know, I know that a, you know, it, it takes, it takes a certain strength to go there again, but there's, there's so much, uh, of an impact because I hear it. People reach out and, and talk about these, these conversations, but between, between that, between, you know, your training, the ownership, the grit, the, you know, all, all these different variables, it's been a great, great conversation. So thank you for taking the time and being so generous today. Well, thank you so much, brother. I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, I'm sure we will do it again sometime. I've really enjoyed the conversation.